Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Thanks for that, Polly. Well, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight. We've got my panel, the writer and broadcaster, Dominique Samuels, and the political consultant, Emma Bernal. Good evening, ladies. Um, and you know the drill on Jubes and Kerbine now, don't you? It's not just about us three. Uh, it's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? So you can get in touch with me on email, which is gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, speaking of tweets, by the way, did you see that tweet that Nadine Doris uh, retweeted the other day? Uh, it was an image of Rishi Sunak stabbing Boris Johnson in the back. A mocked-up image, of course. Uh, she put the words, he's running to become PM and his name is Rishi Sunak. What did you think to that? It's got a lot of criticism. Uh, is that justified criticism? Should she apologise or what? You tell me. Uh, also, by the way, if you are a fellow Yorkshireman, happy Yorkshire Day to you. We've just been talking about that with Colin Brazier. Love a little bit of Yorkshireness. Uh, if you've never been to Yorkshire, I'm telling you now, you are missing out. Can't believe, actually, that the people out there that haven't been to Yorkshire, uh, if you're not, get yourself over there. What are you waiting for? Uh, Dominique, why are you laughing? Yorkshire's brilliant. <laughs> Dominique Samuel's laughing at me. Uh, Yorkshire is absolutely wonderful. I love Yorkshire as well, don't worry. Good, good. <laughs> Ignore the laughter, everyone. I think it's the best uh, county in the UK, that is for sure. Uh, you tell me whether or not you agree with me or not. Right, our top story tonight, shall we? GB News has been told that the number of people pulled off small boats in the English Channel today is likely to have surpassed this year's record so far. It's understood that more than 600 people have been brought ashore in Kent after about a dozen small boats were intercepted uh, by border force, etc., etc. Well, our Home Office and security editor, Mark White, has the latest details. At the entrance to Ramsgate Harbour, two border force vessels, the catamarans Typhoon and Volunteer, have arrived together to unload dozens of people pulled from small boats in the middle of the channel. Since first light, Border Force, lifeboats and the Royal Navy have been responding to multiple reports of small boats crossing into UK waters. For the past week, Border Force has been using Ramsgate as an alternative landing spot for channel migrants because of the traffic chaos around Dover. Those taken to Ramsgate are being bussed to the nearby Ministry of Defence base at Manston, where part of the site is now being used as a secondary processing centre. GB News has been told Monday's total is likely to beat this year's record for the largest number of migrants arriving on a single day. That figure was reached on the 14th of April when 562 people arrived. Now, at least 600 have been taken ashore after multiple small boats were intercepted over a 10-hour period. It brings the total number of people who've crossed the English Channel in small boats this year to around 17,000. 
It comes as the Home Secretary is reported to be close to agreeing a controversial multi-million pound renewal of payments to French authorities to ensure they continue to play their part in trying to stop small boats from leaving their beaches in the first place. Mark White, GB News. There you go. I mean, uh, it's almost laughable, really, isn't it? Because we talk about renewing these uh, millions upon millions of pounds. What are they achieving so far? Uh, not very much, it feels like to me. Dominique, where do you stand on all this? I think this is quite frankly making a mockery of the British people and a mockery of this country's borders. Uh, we're sending what is? The fact that so many people are allowed to come here, almost aided um, and abetted by this government and also France, we're sending millions to them willy-nilly when the rate at which um, people are actually being stopped coming here has declined. And whilst our border force staff aren't even accurately logging the information of the people um, that are coming here, over 200 migrants have absconded from the hotels that they were placed in um, since the 1st of September 2021. Um, and a large number of those people hadn't even had their identities logged. So that's anonymous people in our country posing a risk to the British public. And what's Pretty Patel's response? How do you know they're posing a risk? Because you don't know who these people are. You don't know if they've committed crimes before in a different country. You don't know how old they are, really. You don't know what kind of state of mind they're in. You don't know if they're terrorists or anything. You don't know anything about these people and you're letting these people into this country and not actually doing your due diligence. And to say the response to that, Pretty Patel, is to send more millions to France, I think is laughable. What would actually work and give them some incentive to come to the negotiating table is turning the boats back to Calais because they have no incentive to keep migrants in their country. It's a problem that nobody really wants, let's be honest. Yeah, I'm talking tough on this, by the way. Um, I was David Davis, I mentioned that in the intro. Uh, he did a piece, I think it was this weekend, actually, where he's saying that actually the UK has followed Australia down the route of, um, you know, offshore processing. So we talk about Rwanda. Um, and he was saying that was the wrong part of the Australian policy to follow. He, feel, he feels that we should be following them on what's called pushback, turn back, which is basically uh, where you intercept these boats and take them back, tow them back to where they've come, in this case, France. I mean, I think there are two different tracks in this story, one of which is the government's failure to grip what they want their policy to be and deliver that for the people that they want to deliver it for. The other is whether that's the right approach. So David Davis is saying um, basically that the government's policy is failing. I think we can probably all agree on that. Whether or not you agree that the government's approach in the right, is right in the first place might be where we would differ. I'm you know, I'm, I'm literally here to be your woolly liberal lefty um, voice on the panel. Um, and I do think that when we talk about people in these desperate situations, nobody's going to take this journey without being pushed into it. There is a definite push factor as to why they're choosing to make these journeys. Um, I think we are in danger well, of sometimes I, I losing our... I don't really understand what you're saying. What I'm well, saying is no... factor to leave France. Well, it's the push factor to get to the UK. They are more likely to have con uh, to have 
uh, contacts here, family members well, here. That's, that's why they're coming that's here. A that's a pull factor to, for that bit of the journey. But the whole journey, is, journey as a whole, that they sign up to when they're coming from very dangerous and difficult places. Well, not there are a lot of things that we could do. There are a lot of things that we can do in a lot of different ways. Surely they're coming from. They're coming. Some of them are coming from France across that last leg of the journey, but they don't sign up at the beginning of the journey. The journey doesn't start in Calais. This is what I'm saying. But more than that, I'm saying I. I'm aware that we're going to differ on the treatment of migrant policy. I think we're agreeing on the fact that whatever, you're, whatever you want that migrant policy to be, it's being poorly delivered. So I, I think that there needs to be two discussions, both of which need to be filled with a consciousness of humanity as well as a need for clear laws to be delivered clearly. Yeah, I think there's a need for humanity, but I sort of push back on this idea that these are all terrified, vulnerable people fleeing these really dangerous countries because, A, they are coming from France, and, B, the vast majority of these people are working-age men. And if it was women and children that were overwhelmingly coming here, I think we could all agree that they are extremely vulnerable groups of people. But these, the vast majority of these people, over 90%, are... Males. Are you saying it's not possible to be vulnerable if you're a working-age man? It's not. It's not yeah. impossible to be vulnerable if you're a working-age man. But working-age men are, are more likely to be constricted into the uh, into the armies and the battles that are happening in these countries. Yeah, but because these are working-age men, they're more likely to be coming here for reasons other than simply safety. That being economic reasons. There's a reason why so many of these migrants that are coming on these boats are disposing of things that could mark their identity, like. Uh, passports, phones, disposing of these and, and dropping them into the sea, and that's a fact. It's been filmed, them doing this. So if they were all extremely desperate, like a lot of I mean, people on the left are saying, why would they get rid of markers of their identity? I mean, if, it, you say they've been filmed as if that's a data point that, that says all of them are doing it. I mean, if every single is every single literary agent dropping their phone in the sea just because we know that Colleen Rooney or the other one, I don't, Rebecca Vardy's agent, did that. I'm just saying that's uh, that's not the same what? thing as we know that that's <laughs> happening over and over again. Some people have lost their documents. Some people have got rid of their documents. Some people are not behaving. Why are properly. they fleeing the hotels then before their identity? This is what I'm saying. You're saying 200 of them. There were 500 arrived yesterday. 200 since 2001, September 2001, is not a vast percentage of. But do you them. accept that? That's what I'm saying. That is a problem. What I'm saying is we have, at the moment, laws being applied badly that should be applied better. I believe that I would like to change the way that we talk about the migration situation overall, but we have a democratically elected government who are failing at what they've said they'll do to the majority of people who disagree with me. What do you say about that? I, I would completely agree. I think the government has been abysmal um, on this, not just on stopping the boats from actually arriving, but um, there was a report, a report released in July that found that in terms of um, staffing knowledge of how to actually handle the amounts of people that are coming in, um, it's abysmal. Uh, their data collection was described by the Independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration as inexcusably awful. So there's clearly a problem once they actually arrive as well, and, and that's what's creating so much um, anxiety and issues with regards to so many migrants being in the hotels, but also migrants not actually leaving once their asylum claims have been rejected. Uh, so what do we all think then to David Davis's uh, David Davis idea uh, that I was mentioning earlier on, which is emulating the Australian... Uh, it's called so Operation Sovereign Borders. We referred to it before. 
he's saying, uh, and actually, it's, I was quite impressed when I saw this piece. The reason I was impressed is because I had a lot of thought put into an actual solution. It went down to quite a lot of detail in terms of which contractors could do what part of the uh, process. He'd seemed to have thought it through, and that, for me, is something that I think has been lacking with this government at the moment. There's a lot of platitudes, there's a lot of uh, nice-sounding things that don't really have any substance to them. So I'll tweet this David Davis thing if you've not seen it, but what he is essentially advocating is what you'd call a pushback, a turnback situation where you'd intercept these boats uh, in the middle of the channel. Before that, actually, you'd have some kind of radars or something checking for uh, activity, looking at where these smugglers are actually, you know, sending these boats off. Then you'd alert the, Fran the French, in this case, uh, let them do something. I mean, I say do something with a, a half grin on my face because I don't think they would do anything anyway. Um, and if they still continued that uh, journey, you'd intercept them. Um, and what you would then do is provide a safe uh, vessel to put these people in with food, water, etc., and then tow them back to France. The object of that uh, policy, of course, would be to send a clear message back to the, the uh, people smugglers, also to the people wanting to make that journey, that actually you won't be successful in that journey. If you can send that message back that the journey won't work, less people are going to risk their lives to try and make that journey. Would you be in favour of such a policy, Emma? I think that sounds more humane than many of the, the other things that we've had mooted. Um, I am unsure of the practicalities of it. Um, we are talking about the most, uh, the busiest shipping lane in the world, as I understand it. Um, how we then run a series of other boats into that without getting in the way of trade, I don't know. Um, I'd like to know a lot more about how that would practically and pragmatically work. Um, I'm not. I'm not ideologically against it. I want to see that it would work. I have questions about this government's ability to contract boats. Last time they tried to do that, didn't we end up with a, a set of ferries that were actually running on the terms and conditions of a pizza restaurant? Um, so, so, yeah, I vaguely remember something <laughs> like that. Something like um, that. So, yeah, I would like to see a pragmatic trial. I'm not ideologically against that in, as, as, a, as a way of looking at how we do push back, but I do think there are ways of intervening far earlier in people's journeys, way of de dealing with people smugglers in the original countries of origin that might be better and actually, in the end, cheaper for the UK government and better in terms of the migrants and the people's lives that are being, uh, you know, turned upside down. Yeah, and just to uh, directly respond to your point, by the way, in the piece that David Davies writes, he referenced what you say about the busy shipping lanes. He says... Since the primary driver for any government agency should be safety, no matter the nationality, the French Coast Guard should intercept these fragile inflatables crowded with people before they enter the major sea lanes that run down the middle of the English Channel. Um, so there you go. His plan would be you get your uh, satellites or whatever, your radars up, you spot this activity while it's happening, you tell France about it, you give them the opportunity to get involved before the risk really kind of turns uh, to its peak. And then, if, that, if they don't do anything, you intercept those boats, put the people in more uh, robust, steady boats, and take them back. Um, I, have, I have to say, on balance, that sounds like common sense to me, and I'm not sure why it hasn't previously been implemented. It sounds a lot more simple to me than getting people and sticking them over to Rwanda or something like that. You well, that me... is the question. I would like to know why it hasn't been implemented, because there probably are reasons, and I'd like to hear what those were before making any final decision. 
Who would you? There you go. She wants the reasons before <laughs> making any final decision. Not that um, I get to make decisions. Yeah, there you go. Yes, it'll all come down to Emma. Uh, Priti Patel's going to watch Jubes and Kerr. She's going to present these um, ideas. And if it flies with Emma Bunnell, then Priti uh, is going to give them the nod. I think that's how the uh, process is going to work. <laughs> uh, you tell me at home, by the way, where do you stand on this? Uh, what do you think to more money? Uh, what do you think to the whole turn back, push back, whatever you want to call it, that David Davis is suggesting? Um, lots of people. I mean, Owen is saying... Uh, well. The, th the thing that's coming through thick and fast is the deterrent is what's needed. The deterrent isn't working. Like Rwanda, people will say, well, Rwanda's not been a deterrent, but that's probably because it hasn't happened yet. If it did happen, maybe it would be deterrent. I don't know. Um, Paul says, Michelle, of course, we should be taking migrants back to France. Um, we should, Peter says, why don't we start taking French fish uh, fishing boats uh, license away? Um, and that might cajole the French government into acting and taking this responsibility seriously. Um, right, shall I just give you some context, by the way, to some of the numbers um, that people have been talking about recently when it comes to this. In 2020, £28 million uh, was given to France to try and stop this. Uh, 8,400 people crossed. Uh, in 2021, £54 million was sent to France and 28,000 people crossed. And in 2022... Uh, it's just shy so far of 17,000 people have crossed. I mean, you don't need to be Einstein to uh, see that this isn't working very well at the moment, is it? Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company at the writer and broadcaster, Dominique Samuels, and the political consultant, Emma Burnell. Uh, I got a message from Russell during the break, one of my viewers, saying, great show, great channel. But please, Michelle, can you explain why your guests are so far away from you? <laughs> he says, I doubt it's because you smell. <laughs> and then, Russell, you go on to say something that's a bit weird. You say, I imagine, Michelle, that you smell like freshly picked flowers. Aww. Thank you. That's very sweet. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends what flower it is, I guess. Um, anyway, no, I don't think that I smell, um, although I have no sense of smell, so quite frankly, I wouldn't know. But, uh, Russell, I always listen to my viewers and I've listened to you. And look, I've pulled her closer to Hello. me. Hello. Look, they get, get a wide shot. Look, she's next to me now. Look, can you see? Um, I think you were a bit worried about sitting close to me, Emma, in case some of my views rubbed off on you. Was it that? Uh, that absolutely, Michelle. I can't be... I mean, quite apart from anything else, it's the Yorkshire thing. I'm, I was married oh, to God. a Yorkshireman briefly and then just... Oh. Oh, do I bring back, <laughs> does my accent bring back bad memories? Luckily, he was North Yorkshire, so we had more of your Teesside, smoggy accent. Oh, right. Well, there you go, Russell. I like to get to the heart of all of the important things on Jubes and Curse. So we got to the bottom of that and we fixed it. Right, uh, what were you doing yesterday? Did you watch uh, The Lioness? I did. Uh, have I got any clips of it? Am I going to play you anything? Yes, here we go. There you go. Uh, we've just seen that one. That's the trophy being raised. Uh, I think that was today, actually. Yeah. And it's all the girls there having a right old dance, enjoying their moment. I mean, and so they should. Lots of flag waving, lots of cheering. Uh, of course, I'm talking about uh, England women's. Uh, football that beat Germany yesterday to become European champions. Take that, boys. Uh, you remind me, when was the last time uh, you won <laughs> such a such an important uh, trophy, you tell me. Uh, right, very briefly on this one, Emma. Uh, how did you feel? Are you into women's football? Is this a turning point? I mean, I'm, I'm your classic um, casual football viewer. I watch finals of everything. 
Um, I watch England when they're in internationals. I was sat on the sofa absolutely roaring my support yesterday. Uh, ha and I had my back door open and I could hear other people from my flats doing the same thing. It was just wonderful. It was, wasn't it? Um, and it, yeah, I, I was sobbing at the end. Uh, yeah, it, it may be one of those things that I only get into every now and again, but when I do, I really put my, put my heart into it and I just thought it was wonderful. Oh, good. Dominique? Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. It made me really proud, actually, yeah. to be a woman. Um, and I think it was an historic win. to be an English woman. Yeah. yeah it was one of those great patriotic moments. Yeah, it was. It. And I think we needed some good news. Mm, I yeah. think everything yeah. that we've been getting just lately has just been so negative. We needed something to actually celebrate. And for it to be female sport, especially at a time when it is, you know, under attack, in my opinion, right now, I think it, it, it is a testament to... To women's sport. And it felt like it was a moment where we all just went, I don't care how we differ, I don't care yeah. what your politics are, let's just get out and celebrate bringing it home. Yeah, it's wonderful. Mike's not having any of it. He's emailed <laughs> in and said, I never watched a second of it. Uh, within six months, it'll all be forgotten about, uh, as not a single club, big or small, is making a single penny from the ladies' game. Uh, Got to say, Mike, one of the challenges that uh, the sport will have is because right now, today, everyone's talking about it. You know, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's front page news, literally, today. And it's everyone's into it. It's brought with it a hype, a positivity, an energy, uh, an inspiration. And let's face it as well, uh, if you've got a teenage girl or even just a daughter or a granddaughter, full stop, I mean, would you rather... Uh, your daughter look up to some of these women on the football pitch yesterday or people like the Kardashians. I know which one I'd prefer uh, my child to Absolutely. look up to. But uh, Mike does make an important point and it's something that you uh, briefly touched on there, Emma, as well. For women's football to progress, whether that's commercially or whatever it is, it's got to have the eyeballs, it's got to have the demand and the audience. And I hope that the people that watched yesterday, that got into it, that are talking about it today, I hope that translates then to regular support and viewership. I mean, I think it will because um, there, what was wonderful uh, and it from you could see it on the television, you could see it walking around the streets, how many young girls were mm. so excited by not just, uh, you know, the fact that we were, England were in a final, but the, the people that they could look up to and become were in a final. And that, I think, is, is how these things do grow. I think the game has been growing over time. If you look at, you know, the last 20 years of the, the, the women's game in football, you know, 20 years ago, it was almost nowhere, almost nothing talked about. And I think that, that it really has accelerated. And that's about visibility. And I just hope it keeps growing and growing because this is so important for kids to have those role models to grow into. Indeed. Well, John um, has written in and said, oh, talking about women's football, yawn, yawn, yawn. Hush. John, if you don't want women's football, don't play women's football, John. What? I don't think John probably does play women's football. <laughs> well, quite. So why does he have to yawn? Go watch the other channel. There's hundreds of them. Although, hey, I tell you what, in this day and age, I wouldn't put it past John <laughs> to be able to play women's football exactly. uh, the way that society is going. But anyway, uh, Keith says, I'm not going to lie, uh, my eyes were welling up and I'm a 50-year-old man. It was not just that they won it, it was the fantastic camaraderie at how mm. they did it and what they achieved. It's what makes... Britain brilliant. There you go, that says Keith. Uh, well done, Lionesses. Uh, all power to you. I hope I hope people do pay attention now, more attention to women's football, and I hope it goes onwards and upwards. And speaking of football, changing the tone quite dramatically, I admit, uh, a story that caught my eye today as well were the conversations that are taking place at the moment within the sport, uh, men's sport particularly, 
about taking the knee at football matches, the players, uh, of course, have been doing so. Should it continue into this new season, Dominique? No, and I think that's the thing about, you know, woke gestures, is that they're fashionable until they're not fashionable anymore. And the fact that this is a question of, you know, should we still do this two years on? Um, it's a question that should be answered with a clear no. You know, it harks back to, you know, the BLM, the Black Lives Matter organisation, which has been roundly disgraced now. And all of the people that were criticising the organisation, first and foremost, were right. Um, it's not really about black people. It's a political movement. And I don't think every day people that go to watch football want to be lectured by, quite frankly, loaded football players that oftentimes don't really have a deep understanding of what it is they're talking about. It's just virtue signaling. Just keep the politics off the pitch, please. So that's a no for yeah. you. <laughs> I think that was a strong uh, no vibe there from Dominique in terms of footballers taking the knee. Emma, where do you stand on it? I think it has to be up to individual footballers. I think that's the point. Um, it doesn't hark back to the BLM organisation. What it harks back to is one brave individual, Colin Kaepernick, who took the knee because he wanted to make a non-violent protest about um, police violence in but the US. But it's been co-opted. It, it may have been co-opted. They only this, started doing it after the This BLM is absolutely... The, the, the other people started doing it as it became more widely spread. BLM, BLM may have co-opted BLM co-opted some things I agree with, some things I disagree with, but that doesn't mean that all political protest is therefore illegitimate because it can be co-opted. The mass adoption, co though, wasn't about Colin Kaepernick, was and it? The, the mass adoption is where I think there has to be questions because what I would want is for individuals who do care about this, and there are several individuals, and they are, you know, care in the Premier League, care about systemic racism uh, in the country, who want to say, this is a thing that I care about, something I'm going to put my time and energy and effort into. So if I wish to drop my knee for 30 seconds... It's about the system. It's about it, society. It, well, yeah, football's part of the system and society. If they point. wish to make that point, they should make that point. If they don't wish to make that point, there should be no... Uh, no impetus for them to do it. I think it should be up to each individual footballer rather than anyone saying you all have to do it or none of you but can do it But the reality is, because it's so political and, like you said, it's about, you know, the wider system being racist, it's not really unique to football. If it were unique to football, um, you know, they'd be pushing for things like the Kick It Out campaign that was about racism in football, which is mm. obviously appalling. But because they're making such wide points about racism, it's, it's similar to... Um, certain players in sport not wanting to wear the LGBT flag because of personal religious views. There's sort of a group pressure for these people to adorn themselves with these political statements. And if they don't do it, they're painted as a racist or a homophobe or not really caring about the issues. That's why you just have to keep politics out of things that aren't inherently political. Sport but is saying that is, is in itself a political statement. Saying things that should be apolitical and saying you cannot make this statement is itself political. What? So, yeah, of course how, it's political. How, how? Saying that someone cannot say something is a political Hang thing on. to do. Uh, no, I need to, uh, I need to understand. H saying you cannot use a football pitch to make a political statement, how is that political? Because you're denying someone their political voice and rights. But why is your football pitch, your place... Because they have free speech and this is a channel all place, about free speech. But it's your place of work and at your place of work... The people that employ you should be able to say, actually, I don't want these divisive Well, actually, we've just seen, and quite rightly, on, on a tribunal case where somebody's um, 
personal opinions were not they were not allowed to be discriminated at work because, purely because of them Are you when they said about that Alison Stonewall Bailey? was yeah Alison That's Bailey a completely different but it's not it's, it's the, the principle is the same thing it's the important if you have a political point of view you should not be discriminated at your workplace because that's you not that's it. not discrimination though she wasn't stopped from speaking what she did was have a gender critical opinion and she was then investigated. But hang on, because a lot of people might not be familiar with that story, so let's not go off topic. Let me keep <laughs> you back on topic, you two. Uh, have you got any limits to this then? So all of these footballers can choose to use the, their workplace, i.e., the pitch, to make. What? Where do we draw the line? A 30 second knee is fine by me. If they, if they spend the whole game on their knees, I would set them as the coach. But what? So, so it's I'm about saying the it's literally. They. I mean, I've, you watch it. They drop to their knee for like 30 seconds. It really doesn't impinge in their ability to do their job at all. Well, there you go. Uh, you tell me which one of these two ladies do you agree with is taking the knee necessary or not? Um, a lot of you are saying. No, uh, to put it mildly, uh, you're, you're saying some stronger words than Shock just me. no, but uh, yeah, somebody <laughs> say no. Um, Barry says no, stop bringing sport into disrepute. There should be large fines for doing it, uh, says Barry, who says he's in Rotherham. Um, large fines. Emma won't be having any of that if she was in charge, I can tell you. Um, you, you're a playwriter. Would you allow people to take the knee at the start of your yeah, absolutely performances? Yeah. Of course, I would. Yeah, why, why not? I mean, people are. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, uh, it would be interesting to see somebody in what is a really traditionally liberal lefty sphere take a stance that was against what the audience believed in, and I would absolutely support their right to do that. Well, gone are the days, it seems, ladies and gentlemen, where you could just go to football for a bit of light-hearted sport entertainment. No. For 30 days. seconds. But that's, this is the thing. It's, every, it's literally everywhere. You can't watch a movie, you can't do anything without having some political message shoved down your throat involuntarily. And it just makes everything so heavy and serious when it genuinely doesn't need to be. And it's getting to the point for me where I can't switch anything on without having some sort of message shoved But they're supposed throat. to be trying to help I don't black want... people. That's what they're saying. They, they will say, I'm trying to help the black community, <laughs> that you should be saying thank you, some people would say. Well, well, that would be extraordinarily <laughs> patronising. Well, exactly. <laughs> no, but people genuinely do think that. They think if you're I black, do. that you should be grateful almost. No, there's no... The idea that all black people should have the same political opinion is just uh, in, in its way as racist as the idea, uh, yeah, as, as you know, any other racist opinion. Exactly, there is yeah. no groupthink and just because you have one race, there is no group think just because I happen to be white. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Mm, well, I mean, I've been on this show with you before um, where you got into a debate, Dominique, with someone who was really uh, had the mindset that because you were black, you had to think a certain way. Do you remember? Yeah. And there were, the conversation was about, oh, you know which side uh, bread your bread was buttered on, on <laughs> because you didn't agree with the sentiment that you were being told that you had to... Agree with exactly, and, no, and that's this, fine. And this is the thing Sorry. about about taking the knee. It's not that I don't believe the player's heart is in the right place. I do think they they're genuinely saying I care about racism um, and I don't want it in my society any longer. But I think you have to think about the repercussions of it and the wider debate. And that's why with political stances in places where it isn't needed, it, it should just be avoided. So, yeah, well, where do you stand on that? Uh, are you for taking the knee or not? Uh, should players be able to make any political gesture 
that they want uh, on the pitch? Or should the pitch just be, quite frankly, for kicking a football about? And that is it. You tell me. Get in touch. GBviews at gbnews.uk is my email address. Stephen says, Michelle, uh, quite frankly, I would rather watch Tiddlywings uh, than watch ladies football. What did you just say? What's Tiddlywings? No, what's Tiddlywings? Oh, my God. Right. That's what I'm going to have to spend my break doing, ladies and gentlemen, educating Dominique uh, as to what Tiddlywings are. What it could sound a bit rude, actually, but it's not. It's, it's a wholesome, uh, child-friendly game. I'll talk, talk to you all about it in the break. Uh, Paul says... Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company tonight, the writer and broadcaster Dominique Sanrills and the political consultant Emma Burnell. We've just been teaching Dominique all about Tiddlywinks. In 10 seconds, explain to the nation what is Tiddlywinks, Dominique. You put something into a cup. What? <laughs> no, that was me describing how you pour a glass of wine. Right, she didn't pay any attention. I don't know, I'm sorry. I don't pay any attention. <laughs> that is the last time. Isn't that what you said? <laughs> you, you get a disc and you flick another disc with it and try to get it into the cup, yes. That right. is the end point. <laughs> this is what I have to work with, ladies and gentlemen. Literally, this is what I have to work with. Right, uh, if you was paying attention to the news on Friday, you will have noticed Wayne Cousins, do you remember him? He failed in his appeal against a whole life sentence for the rape and murder of Sarah Everard. I was desperate to talk about this, so I was on Friday, but we were, of course, fixing the nation then, so I saved it for tonight. Uh, cousins will die, apparently, behind bars when it's his natural time to do so. Many people, though, have been in touch about this particular case, and there's others as well, saying that this is the kind of case that should... Um, see the death penalty return to the UK. The last time someone was ex executed in the UK was 1964. And that's been the end of it. But where do you stand on it? I'll pick up with you, Dominique, on this one. The death penalty, should it be a thing? I think it rest upon, rests upon the idea of evil existing. And I think, as a society, we need to acknowledge that evil does exist. And when people are evil and do evil things, um, we also need to accept that those people are beyond rehabilitation. And for that reason, I do support the death penalty, and I always have supported the death penalty. But for specific crimes, um, so for particularly depraved murders, like the one that um, Wayne Cousins committed, and specifically for child murder um, and child abuse that involves torture, that's very specific. And when you that look is at... quite specific. Yeah, no, it's very specific. And when you look at the polls, though, when you look at the polls, there's a number of YouGov polls on this on supporting capital punishment. And a majority of the public, over 50%, and only about 38% um, disagreed on this, the public would actually support the death penalty for child murderers. And when you look at how these people are treated, um, for example, John Venables, uh, the creature um, who murdered that um, two-year-old boy... Um, Jamie Bulger. Jamie, yeah, James Bulger... You know, five million in total was spent on him since 1993, and this was a, um, an article in 2017. But he was like, a, what, a 10-year-old boy? What, would you have killed a 10-year-old boy? I wouldn't have killed a 10-year-old boy, but I would have waited um, until he was an adult. And I think well, he should Happy have 18th birthday. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, I think <laughs> hey, he should have... No, special room no, for I'm, you, I, I'm serious. I think he should have got the death penalty. If you can murder, torture and harm a child, if you can commit depraved murders, you're not... You're beyond rehabilitation, I think... Oh, I can tell you, you know, I remember the James Bulger um, situation well. 
and it was appalling then. And now, thinking about it now that I've got a two-year-old boy, it does completely. And he went back into prison for child abuse images. So beyond rehabilitation, rehabilitation. Emma Bernal. I agree. There are some people beyond rehabilitation. Where I disagree is with the idea that the state has the right to take a life. Um, I. Um, that, obviously, there are grey areas. I've, I'm not a pacifist, so I agree the state has a right to send people to war, which involves taking life. But I philosophically disagree with um, whether the state has the right to, with, to withdraw life as a punishment. Um, going beyond that philosophy, and that's something that you either believe in or don't believe in, um, where I think the, the more pragmatic complications of this would be, we have discussed at length tonight and previously um, many, many failings of state institutions. When you take someone's life, there's no restitution for that. There's no coming back from that. Um, one state failure of, um, you know, the death penalty for somebody who didn't deserve it is too many. Uh, I just think that's but you a line would do we it in cases. Cross. You would do it in cases where it's like beyond... There's no doubt that this person has done these things. There's no doubt but, you've got your DNA evidence, your CCTV or whatever it is. Like Arthur Labinjo um, Hughes, the two people that murdered him that were supposed to be his parents, you know beyond reasonable doubt that they tortured and, and, and killed I mean, I would, I so want I these people locked up for life. I am not, I'm not going to, to make some sort of woolly liberal open prison for Wayne Cousins' case. That's not what I'm here to do. I just draw the line at state-sanctioned murder. I just do. I, uh, it's something I cannot ever say is the right way to go. I don't it think it acts as a deterrent. Uh, it, it's not, certainly not, not been proved deterrent. as a deterrent um, in any of the countries where it's been used. Murder rates are still significantly... You know, there, there's just been no proof that it works as a deterrent. So it is just revenge, and I don't think that, that think the state justice. should take revenge. I think it's justice, and I'm not saying that it's going to be a deterrent. I'm not... I don't want it to be a deterrent. Because at the end of the day, if you're an evil person, it doesn't matter what the state does, you're going to do what you want to do, and that is to commit acts of evil. It doesn't matter if the death penalty exists or not. I think if you look at, say, um, you know, the, the, the mass murderer and rapist Ted Bundy um, from America, the, his, his case, the only feeling of justice people got was him being put to death. There were scores of people cheering outside in joy because someone so evil was put to death. For me, that is that is justice. Yeah, but I don't think mob justice is always justice. And, and um, we were discussing mob justice from the other perspective when we were talking about BLM earlier. And the problem is, who gets to set what mob justice is when we're but talking that's about having an understanding rights. of... That's it. It's having and accepting that evil exists. And someone like Ted Bundy, for example, who can rape and murder multiple women, including an 11-year-old girl, people like that shouldn't be able to be alive. But when we get to a state like um, Russia, for example, they may well define evil in a very different way than we would and kill people we would 100% disagree with that state execution of. And that, once you set a line that state execution is OK, then it's up to the politicians of the day to decide what is and isn't uh, applicable for that sentence. That's, I think that's a fair point. At least, if not the death penalty, which I still agree with for child murderers, at least they should have some sort of, of punishment, because I don't think... Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're not disagreeing on that punishment. at all. I think they should be put to work. I think 
you know, they should be the Who's ones... Who's going to be put to work? The prisoners, I think, they should be the ones doing the jobs that British people supposedly don't want to do. Um, I Hang think on, so you want ones... some absolute wrong some serial killer, some someone that's... I'm going to be a bit rude now, but maybe that's someone that's not quite, you know, that, that's not quite sane. You want them in amongst a workforce randomly picking fruit or something? No, not like that, but more so... Um, Segregated. So in America, um, this was described as inhumane, but I think for the most depraved of, of killers, I don't think it is. But they were put to work in fields, for example, mining, etc. I think that there are some things that those sorts of prisoners could be doing rather than sitting in a cell. I don't see how that's punishment. You tell me, what do you think to this at home? There was, you mentioned YouGov poll, there was a YouGov poll done fairly recently, actually, uh, where it asked people about their take on this kind of situation. Uh, Britons, it says, are more likely than not to support the death penalty for the worst crimes, but not for all cases of murder. So in the cases of multiple murder, 55% of people would support the death penalty. In the cases, uh, say, the murder of a child, that was 52% of people uh, supported the death penalty when it came to that situation. And when you do hear names like Arthur Labinger Hughes, uh, and you remember what was done, he was a six-year-old little boy, um, and he was, it was a form of torture that was inflicted on him. You know, what right do people have to then do that to someone and then continue their lives? Like you talk about Wayne Cousins. This is a man. I mean, you, I'm not even sure you could get much lower. Angela Rayner walks around calling political opponents scum. People that are scum are people like Wayne Cousins. I mean, for, I don't think that's a strong enough word for him. He donned a police uniform during a lockdown, abused his position to get a girl into the back of his car. He then handcuffed her, left a completely... Defenses. I am not going to... Dif I, I'm very glad this man is going to be set, locked up for the rest of his life. He set her body on fire. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, excuse me. We are all on the same page on Wayne Cousins. He absolutely... I'm so glad that his appeal failed. He should be locked up and rot in a jail cell for the rest of his well, life. Well, I don't I think he should say, be alive. Yeah. I just don't. And I think uh, a lot of people would agree with that sentiment. I think I probably agree with it. And, you know, I would say the final say should go to the family of the victim. Oh, I, I, I mean, God, I don't agree with that because I just think nobody is rational uh, when they are the family of a victim. Uh, I wouldn't be. I haven't been when I've been the victim of a crime. It's, you're not in your rationalist state. Well, Chris sums it up, my viewer. If you take a life, you should lose your life. He says, end of. And I'll tell you what it is the end of. My show. Uh, thank you very much, Emma, Dominique, for your company. Thank you at home for yours as well. Have yourself a fantastic night and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Tubes & Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. Thank you.